Welcome to the first annual Conspiracy Therapy Creep Fest we creep with your out. host, Ravenous, Macho Hogan, Brian, and Ludicrous Larry, and J- Jovial Josh? I don't wow. know. Jovial. What's, what, what's a scary alliteration Jolly? to J? Jo- Jolly's not scary. No. J- Jumpy? What's a scary? Jumpy. Jumpy. No. Jumpy. Jumpy. Jumpy people. Yeah. And Larry, I don't know if I liked yours either. No. Lynchin? Lynch- no, that's no, not good no, at all. No, no, Luscious. No. <laughs> no. Luscious sounds like a Valentine's Day, Larry. Uh, yeah. Leisure suit, Larry? Leechy? No, you're not leechy. You're a given type fella. Uh, lemon head Larry. <laughs> what is a lemon head? Is that like the That's like a melon second, head. Second, second, it's really cousin of a head. melon head? Yeah. It's melon head cousin, yeah. <laughs> Tiny little head. <laughs> they suck. They sucked all the water out of my head. <laughs> With a shop back. <laughs> yep. Guys, guys, guys. Okay, so it's Halloween. Yeah. We're all excited. The the Yay. moon is full. Half of us are going to turn into werewolves and the other half are going to turn into lizard people. <laughs> cool. um, we're hoping that the world doesn't explode or blow up. <laughs> and uh, I thought that being this is our actual Halloween day episode, we would tell... Well, I will. You guys will respond as per how you normally would. Mm-hmm. What's my, that supposed to mean? Well, Josh, you're gonna um, what would Josh? What would Josh do? What Crow would Larry do? A, a Courtney Love reference into the story. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> he is kind of a construction worker in that that field. Larry, what 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 is Larry gonna do this episode? Bad, bad make voices a dick joke and make a dick joke. Yep. Okay. Cool. 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 All right. So, anyway, I've prepared. Uh, well, at least one of us did <laughs> spine tingling <laughs> true Ooh. horror stories so Sounds succulent not really uh in <laughs> fact your appetite will probably be relinquished um for but once i think per most episodes we will be drinking so <laughs> hilarity will ensue all right okay fellas. by the we way have... did we ever hit the uh theme music here Okay, so now before I start this, I want to ask you guys what um, if 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 you had to guess what would be the most haunted house in the world without looking anything up, what would you guys guess if you had to guess? I th- I want to say it's the house Ooh. that um, Psycho was shot in. I feel like the, I've yeah, heard the, a story that about that. Or it's a hotel. Yeah, the hotel. Right. But that's not a house. Would, a, that'd be a haunted hotel. Right, but isn't hotel that a fictional? Six, six, six. No, that's, that hotel's actually haunted. Okay. 
Well, so obviously it's not that. <laughs> okay, sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, I'm gonna go with uh, uh, probably a more popular one. I don't know if it's the correct answer, but I'm gonna go with the uh, the Amityville home. I would say that will be another episode for sure. But um, I think they pretty much debunked that one as them trying to partner up with a writer and make some easy money in the okay. 70s. But there was some really terrible things that happened in the Amityville Horror House. Um, dude went nuts. But we'll save that for another episode. This house, actually, we'll, we'll, we'll start with a little scene setting. After her husband's death from tuberculosis in 1881, Sarah Winchester inherited more than $20.5 million. She also received nearly 50% ownership of the Winchester Repeating Arms Company, giving her an income of roughly $1,000 per day, equivalent to about $23,000 a day in 2013. Wow. That's a lot of cheese. Yeah, that's a lot of cheese. She won't be shit for a week. Yes. (laughs) Or rather not. (laughs) These inheritances gave her a tremendous amount of wealth, which she used to fund the ongoing construction of a home that she had built in San Jose, California. Now, tabloids from the time claimed that at some point after her infant daughter, who was only a month old at her death and husband's death, A Boston medium told her while supposedly channeling her late husband that she should leave her home in New Haven and travel west, where she must continuously build a home for herself and the spirits of people who had fallen victims to Winchester rifles. Winchester left New Haven and headed for California, though it is possible she was simply seeking a change of location and a hobby during her lengthy depression. Other sources claim that Winchester came to believe her family and fortune were haunted by ghosts. And that only by moving west and continuously building them a house could she appease these spirits. In 1884, she purchased an unfinished farmhouse in the Santa Clara Valley and began building her mansion. Carpenters were hired and worked on the house day and night until it became a seven-story mansion. She did not use an architect and added on to the building in a haphazard fashion. If you guys look at pictures of this house online, it is insane. There is a window in the floor... There are staircases that literally go to nothing. There are doors that open to like drops. Whoa! Um, yeah, There's, it, yeah, doors that open up just to, to just to a wall, right? Um, many accounts, many accounts attribute these oddities to her belief in ghosts. Before the 1906 earthquake, the house had been seven stories high, but today it is only four stories. The house is predominantly made of redwood, as Miss Winchester preferred the wood. However, she disliked the look of it, which kind of sucks. She therefore demanded that a faux grain and stain be applied. This is why almost all the wood in the home is covered. Approximately 20,500 U.S. gallons of paint were required to paint the house. Wow. The home itself is built using a floating foundation that is believed to have saved it from total collapse during the earthquake. Mm. This type of construction allows the home to shift freely and is not completely attached to its brick base. There are roughly, this is nuts, 160 rooms. Now, think about that. She is the only person who lived in that house, other than the construction workers who went night and day, in and out. God damn it, it. where'd I leave my phone? (laughs) Or my 
Where'd I leave my uh God, what would you have in I don't know what ha- I don't hammer? know what anybody had before the year nineteen eighty two. Uh where's my newspaper? Yeah. Where's my where's printing my, press? Where is my horse? Uh it included forty bedrooms, two ballrooms, one completed and one unfinished, as well as forty seven fireplaces. Also, I saw one of the fireplaces. It went up like six stories and then ended in the attic. Like Four feet away from actually being able to go out and exhale its smoke. So she has one more ballroom than Lance Armstrong. <laughs> <laughs> nice. We we go for the low hanging fruit here on conspiracy therapy, and that's a commitment we hold dear to our hearts. Um. Okay. So as well as forty seven fireplaces, ten thousand panes of glass, seventeen chimneys, two basements, three elevators. And a partridge in a pear tree. Exactly. Winchester's property was about 162 acres at one time, but the estate has since been reduced to 4.5 acres, the minimum necessary to contain the house in nearby outbuildings. It has gold and silver chandeliers, hand-inlaid parquet floors and trim, and a vast array of colors and materials. Due to Miss Winchester's debilitating arthritis, special Easy Rider stairways were installed as a replacement for original steep construction. That those this allowed her carts you ride up. up exactly. And down? Okay. Yes. The uh, <laughs> I'm an old man and I need a ride up the stairs. Yes, Ooh, I'm Mrs. Fun. Winchester. I'm riding Can I get upstairs. this one in uh, uh, in vibrate mode? Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> Okay. That was the this... ghost of orgasms past. <laughs> <laughs> this allowed her to move about her home freely as she was only able to raise her feet a few inches high. There was only one working toilet for Winchester, but all other restrooms were decoys to confuse spirits. Can you imagine being so you, a you have 160 with a... rooms and one toilet? Nope. <laughs> nope. <laughs> no nope. poopy for you, Mr. Oh. Fat Ghost. Too late. Too bad you died with a salami sandwich in your mouth. I'm sorry, but if I were to go there and find a toilet, like, you know what? No one's probably ever used this toilet before. Can you, imagine being, anyways. Can you imagine being one of the construction workers and all of a sudden you got a turtle head poking? <laughs> and and there, and I mean, literally, there's 40... Or, I'm sorry, where, where was the bathrooms? I just saw it. She only has one bathroom. There's 160 rooms in this house. You're just running into. I would. You know what? I tell you what. One I'd of those bedrooms. She never. Decker. Exa- or, or I'm just gonna leave a little fucking <laughs> turtle in the in the bed in one of the beds and just throw the covers hey, on uh, it. Hey, Mrs. Winchester, I recommend you do not turn on that garbage disposal. <laughs> I'm speaking for a friend, not myself. All right. I, so she only had one bathroom out of all those rooms. Yeah. Wow. Yep. Now here's here's some crazy things. The home had certain conveniences that not many homes at the times had because you got to remember this was this start, construction started in 1884. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it included steam and forced air heating, modern Ooh. indoor toilets. Now, granted, toilet and plumbing, push button gas lights, and Miss Winchester's personal hot shower for from the indoor plumbing. There are also, like I said, three elevators, one of which was powered by a rare horizontal hydraulic elevator piston. Most elevator pistons are vertical to save space, but Winchester preferred the improved functionality of the horizontal configuration. 
She sounds like a pain in the ass. She kind of does. You know what? I bet these ghosts got bored after like an hour or two. They're like, they're hopping okay, in. we, <laughs> we played hide and go room. seek. Boo. Oh, you're not here. Next room. <laughs> yeah, Boo. Exactly. Oh, son of a bitch. <laughs> yep, pretty much. So Miss Winchester never skimped on the many adornments that she believed contributed to its archi- architectural yeah, beauty. Except on, on bathrooms. bathrooms. Right. <laughs> Only one of these places is going to smell like bad bread. And that's my bathroom. <laughs> uh, many of the stained glass windows were created by the Tiffany Company. Some were designed specifically for her and others by her, including a spiderweb window that featured her favorite web design and the reptish- repetition of the number 13, another of her preoccupations. She did this a lot. That's actually one of the creepy coincidences is that some of the many of the staircases only had 13 steps and there's actually a really creepy one where there was a seven seven tiered staircase right mm-hmm. that only went up three meter, three meters if you can understand what I'm saying so you're going up the stairs like it's it's not it's not a staircase it's almost like a small hump and then you turn left and you're going up another another tier of the staircase but mm-hmm. you go up seven levels and you only go up three feet that's like a one it's like a staircase that goes up one floor uh-huh. but it's seven you, you understand what i'm saying like there's at seven, seven yeah. at a time right okay so god what a pain in the ass she is exactly she she really she it's almost like she's making a house version of that old board game mousetrap <laughs> um Watch so, out for okay. the marbles. <laughs> uh, the, this window that she designed with the spider web was never installed, but exists in the so-called $25,000 storage room. So named Jesus because its Christ. contents were originally appraised at a value of $25,000. Oh, okay. The value today is an, an, is inestimable, but 25000 would be equivalent to 353429 in 2015. Wow. Okay. <laughs> So skipping ahead a little bit more where we get to kind of the meat and potatoes of this woman's delusions, I'll say. When Winchester died, all her possessions apart from the house were bequeathed to her niece and personal secretary. Also, they completely stopped construction. There There are actually nails in the house that you can see that are half pushed in from... One of, from one of the contractors, basically they they quit when the, when when the nurse came out and was like, "Okay, she's dead." They're, <laughs> they were gone. <laughs> oh, thank God, we can wrap this up. Exactly. I'm gonna go leave that upper decker now. So, the house was bequeathed to her niece and personal secretary. Her niece then took everything she wanted and sold the rest in a private auction. I'm sure she didn't want anything to do with the crazy lady's house. Right. It supposedly took six trucks working eight hours a day for six weeks to remove what? all the furniture from the home. What? Holy smokes. Miss Winchester made no mention of the mansion in her will, and praisers considered the house worthless due to damage caused by the earthquake, the oh, unfinished okay. design, and impractical nature of its construction. It was sold at auction to local investor for $135,000, and subsequently leased for 10 years to John and Mamie Brown, who eventually purchased the house in February 20, 1923. May May. Five months after the Winchester's death, the house was open to the public when Mamie Brown serving as the first tour guide. Harry Houdini Ooh. toured the mansion Ooh. in 1924, and the newspaper account of his visit, displayed in the Rifle Museum on the estate, called it the Mystery House. 
Today, the home is owned by the Winchester Investments LLC, um, and they retain all the unique touches that reflect Miss Winchester's crazy beliefs. <laughs> now, what I didn't mention is that of all, all of the 160 rooms in the house, mm-hmm. there was one room that she went to every night at midnight and talked to the ghosts in. And every night, that's when she got the inspiration for the new house designs that I mentioned before. Uh, and that is totally true. She's a loony bin. The home retains unique touches that reflect Miss Winchester's beliefs and her reported preoccupation with warding off malevolent spirits. These spirits are said to have directly inspired her as the way to the way the house should be built, as I said. The number excuse me, the Oof. number thirteen and spider web motifs were which carried spiritual significance for her occur throughout the house. Um for there was an imported just to show that she continued with this craziness. Uh, there was a chandelier that she imported that originally had 12 candle hold- holders that she had made customly altered to hold 13. Wall That's hooks so bizarre. are in multiples of 13. I, I, I Not to ahead. her level, but I have like this thing about the number 13 as well. Hmm. Like that was always the uniform number I chose for baseball. It just it, felt, it was like a lucky number type thing. It's, hmm. it's still kind of the, to hmm. this day. I like I have a certain uh, attachment to that number, not to her level though. Well, I can say. Understand. Have you ever checked your lineage? Are you are you a Winchester? No, I do know. I know. I do know that. <laughs> that's funny. Um, my lineage goes back to a queen in Scotland that was kicked out. So. <laughs> We got kicked out. Ooh. My liege. Not anymore. <laughs> right. um, in tribute and final, basically wrapping up this little haunted house spook story, the house's current groundskeeper have created a topiary tree shaped like the number 13. Also, wow. every Friday the 13th, uh-huh. a large bell on the property is rung 13 times at 1300 hours, which is 1 o'clock mm-hmm. p.m in tribute to Mrs. Winchester. <laughs> I ring a bell at 420 every day. Whoa. Oh. So, did you guys know that, because yeah. after you mentioned Winchester, it was like I pretty much was slapping myself in the head because I didn't say that first. Mm-hmm. Um, did you guys ever Whoa. see the Stephen King movie Rose Red? No. Mm. It was a made-for-TV Movie and I want it. It was, I believe, also a book, and it was directly inspired by the Winchester home because in the in the movie, there's a massive, massive house, and it essentially keeps changing and having like weird hallways that lead to nothing and stairwells and all that. It's it's. it's a decent movie, but yeah, it's directly influenced by that house, which uh, I've heard that some people that they can go on tours of the home and some people have s- cited things happen on the property. Uh, the tour guides maybe amp it up a little bit. Oh, I'm but, sure they do. Yeah, I'm sure uh, they do. But there have been I would. all the pictures on the website. Say, that the, the, that the home is definitely haunted. Well, all the pictures on the Winchester uh, Winchester House 
com or basically whatever the website is for the for the tours that you take. I mean, there's like CGI Disney looking ghosts. I mean, oh, they're, yeah. all, they're all like Civil War. Um, uh, also, Josh, I think you'll appreciate this. Shinji Mikami, uh, creator of the Evil Within, cites the house as an influence for that game. Oh, absolutely. Also, uh, Fallout 4 has a location in it called the Grandchester Mystery Mansion and yes. the Nuka World expansion um, that was also ins- inspired by the Winchester house. So there's a, there's some pop culture relevance to this house. And I think, um, I think it is creepy. Also, I saw earlier today when I was on my phone that, um, I'm trying to think of her name. Uh, what's the name of that, uh, Dame, the, the girl that was the older lady who was in the movie red with, uh, Bruce Willis, white-haired lady, oh, older lady. Oh, uh, Glenn... F- no. Not Glenn Close. Um, Glenn Farr. No. Um, Helen Mirren. Ah. Helen Mirren is set to star okay. as um, as Sarah Winchester in a movie called oh, wow. Winchester about the... Uh, it's a horror movie about the haunted house. Cool. Um, yeah. So that- yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely cool to... If if you're listening to this, to go check out the pictures of the home because, like Ryan had mentioned, there's parts of the house where you can see tools that they just left, nails that are in the wall. It's it's really pretty cool. Well, fellas, that'll end the haunted house section. It's time to move on to a murder mystery. Yeah. Okay. Have you guys ever heard about who put Bella in the witch elm? No. No? Not that I recall. Okay. Maybe this will jog your memories a little bit. (laughs) I don't do any jogging. Yeah, I was going to (laughs) say, have you seen me, bro? I don't do any kind of jogging unless it's to the fridge or when my wife comes home and says, hey, I bought Twinkies. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that was good. On 18 April 1943... Four local boys, Robert Hart, Thomas Willits, Bob Farmer, and Fred Payne were poaching in Hagley Wood oh, near to Witchberry Hill. No, sir. When they came across a large witch elm, the wood is part of the Hagley estate belonging to Lord Cobham. This is <laughs> Cobham? Obvious, this, what? Is what? this is obviously <laughs> European because holy cow, Lord Cobham. Anyway, I am Lord a good place. Cobham. I am Lord Cobham, and I have ham every Tuesday at two o'clock after I fart and clear the room. <laughs> you do not want to. <laughs> I don't know what voice that was. <laughs> that was like slightly <laughs> Transylvanian. That's because you do not is he a vampire now too. <laughs> you do not want to sneak up on me when I'm eating Cobham. Get to the uh, Wait, wait. Oh. Thinking it a good place to hunt birds' nests, Farmer attempted to climb this tree in Lord Cobham's estate. <laughs> As he climbed, he glanced down into the hollow trunk and discovered a skull. Ooh. At first, he believed it to be that of an animal, but after seeing human hair and teeth, he realized Ooh. that he had found a human skull. As they were on the land illegally, Farmer put the skull back and all four boys returned home <laughs> without mentioning their discovery to anybody. I know, right? <laughs> Seriously, no though. sanitizer question. back then either. Got a question. Yes. When you were a kid, okay, mm-hmm. 
if you had to transport yourself into like 12 year old versions of yourself when with with your friends That's if depressing. you had seen a human's <laughs> if you if you and your friends had seen a human skull, what would your reaction be? Holy shit, I have friends! <laughs> I'm so <itching> laughter. <laughs> I can't believe it! I'm so blessed! Thank you, Jeebus! Uh, knowing Josh, the crowd that I hung out with back then, they would probably take the skull and drink stuff out of it. <laughs> oh, lord. <laughs> God. You were part of a witch cult or a satanic cult? He was no, a juggalo. <laughs> I think it's... Actually, some of the people in that group went on to be yeah, juggalos. They drank Fago oh, out of that God. thing. That's not good. <laughs> we like the sticky. I'm just gonna say right off the bat that when I... If that would have been me, I would have probably immediately pissed my pants, tripped oh. on them as I tried to run away. Why were your pants down in the first place? <laughs> Yeah, if I had seen that, I'd have been like, nah, it's not a piece, I'm done. <laughs> well, on returning home, the youngest of the boys, Tommy Willets, felt uneasy about what he had witnessed and decided to report <laughs> it to his parents. When police checked the trunk of the tree, they found an almost complete skeleton with a shoe, a gold wedding ring, and some fragments of clothing. Just one shoe? Yeah. Hmm. After further investigation, the remains of a hand were found some distance from the tree. The body was sent for forensic ex- examination by Professor James Webster. He quickly established that it was that of a female who had been dead for at least 18 months, Whoa. placing time of death in or before October 1941. Webster also discovered a section of taffeta in her mouth. What's Do you guys that? want to know what taffeta yeah. is? Empanadas? It's a crisp, smooth, plain woven fabric. Hmm. I thought maybe it was like a tapas. No. No. <laughs> anyway, so this fabric was in her mouth, suggesting that she had died from suffocation. From the measurement of the trunk in which the body had been discovered, he also deduced that she must have been placed there still warm after the killing, uh, as she no. could not have fit once rigor mortis had set in. You know what that is, right? Yeah. When the body stiffens up after you die. Oh, yeah. Stiff as a bullet. Since the country was then, when she died, in the midst of World War II, identification was seriously hampered. Police could tell from items found with the body what the woman had looked like, but with so many people reported missing during the war, records were too vast for a proper identification to take place. The current location of her skeleton is unknown as as is that of the autopsy report. In a Radio 4 program, first broadcast in August 2014, Steve Punt suggested two possible victims. The first possibility came from a statement made to police in 1953 by Yuna Mossop, in which she said that her cousin Jack Mossop had confessed to family members that he and a Dutchman called Van Ralt had put the woman in the tree. Mossop and Van Ralt met for a drink at the Light... This is a rough one. Lytle... Lytleton? Lytleton. Lytleton? It's L-Y-T-T-E-L-T-O-N. Lytleton. Arms. Damn a pub Dutch. in Hagley. That's a tongue twister. With Van Ralt was a Dutch woman. Hmm. Later that night, Mossop said the woman became drunk and passed out while they were driving. The men put her in a hollow tree in the woods in the hope that... I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh at that, but... They put her in a hollow tree in the woods in the hope that in the morning she would wake up and be frightened into seeing the error of her ways. So basically, these two played a prank on a drunk woman, and then she, I don't know, 
Jack Mossop was confined to a Stafford mental hos- hospital because he had reoccurring dreams of a woman staring at, out at him from a tree. Wow. He died in the hospital before the body in the witch elm was found. The likelihood of this being the correct explanation is questioned because Una Mossop did not come forward with this information until more than 10 years after Mossop's death. They were left stumped. <laughs> nice. You were waiting on that, weren't you? Oh, yeah, for sure. Oh, I'm sure. Sh- dude, <laughs> you see yourself into any pun pretty quickly. A second possible victim was reported to the police in 1944 by a Birmingham prostitute. In the report, she stated that another prostitute called Bella, who worked on the Hagley Road, had disappeared about three years previously. Mm. Well, that would have been good news to know. Second possible victim, Birmingham prostitute. 1944, a little late. Yeah. Okay. Prostitutes' lives matter. Exactly. So, here's where things get creepy, to me at least. As if the guy seeing a woman looking out of him at him in a tree and dies isn't creepy hey i said we were ramping up slowly or or larry did and i decided to follow that lead so (laughs) fair enough in 1944 the first graffiti message related to the mystery appeared on a wall in upper dean street birmingham reading who put bella down the witch elm oh banksy well if you look (laughs) at it it is creepy um there's no question mark it just it just says basically says who put bella in the witch home and it's put on a gigantic stone wall hmm. on 18 august 1999 the phrase who put bella in the witch home was daubed on the outward facing side of the 200 year old witchbury obelisk in white paint in early june 2016 a cardboard placard appeared next to a fence on the A456 near Hagley Woods. Although not as elaborate as the 1999 graffito, the 2016 sign bore the infamous, infamous words who put Bella in the witch elm, rekindling the 73-year-old question. It is most likely that this cardboard sign was inspired by the local mystery because what I didn't mention is that there were many of these graffiti that popped up. Banksy on a roll. Exactly. <laughs> so back in the day, this happened quite a bit. These, these, um, at least three or four times for sure. And it was in places of like broad, like you're not going to not see it. Mm-hmm. This is a small town. It makes, if, if, if somebody puts this up, do you think they're the ones that did it? Do you think they're guilty about it? No. I mean, that's the thing. What if I, it, I mean, by now, anybody that'd be associated with it would probably be dead. I mean, of course. I mean, if, <laughs> Yeah, I'm out here tagging walls again. (laughs) Can you shake this spray paint can for me, son? I'm not the one who did it. I'm just curious who did it. So I keep realizing Ray Romano was in on this. (laughs) (laughs) Oh God. So anyway, they um, all love Bella. No. It's kind of a creepy thing because I mean, get granted, it's a. Sh- I mean, that's a shorter, shorter of the stories that I have prepared for tonight. But it's it's creepy to me because you you know you got the vision of the girl in the tree, little boys like Stand by Me style finding a dead body in the in you know in the woods, right? And then somebody putting up this graffiti that they were never able to to find out who did it. 
I mean, granted, the, the more recent ones, I think it's just probably kids who get obsessed with like crime yeah, mysteries they're doing copycat online. Stuff, exactly. Basically. It's like it's like all the people dressing like clowns. You heard about that, Josh? Someone just got arrested. Oh. They just there arrested was a kid one. that was just stabbed in Ohio yep. by a clown. Yep. Dude, they're getting closer. Yeah, <laughs> they're they're moving north like Africanized bees. Um, some a quick pop culture references. Composer Simon Holt wrote a 2002 musical theater piece about the mystery entitled Who Put Bill on the Witch Elm? Songwriter Owen Traumans included a song called Bella and the Witch Elm on his 2013 EP. And the song Nail House Music by American post-punk band Self-Defense Family references the mystery with the lyrics repeatedly asking Who put you in the Witch Elm? So, who... Put Bella in the witch home. Uh, Jacob? Next story. Team okay. Edward, baby. I'm ramping it up. All right. Now, the next one we're going to go with, I will say, is the first of these eight that started to really creep me out that I, right. I watched a couple different videos about. These, this is what I've been waiting on. These, these are... Um, this one's tough because it's 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 interesting. First of all, this is the one about the twins. Uh. Now, June and Jennifer Gibbons were both born 11 April 1963. They were identical twins who grew up in Wales, and they became known as the like silent in Wales, twins. like Job. No, 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 no. <laughs> silly, 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 Larry. Wales is a country that is part of the United Kingdom. Oh. I knew that. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, Wales, now that I think about it, isn't that where uh, Michael Douglas's wife, uh, super hot babe, narrowing it name? down. Not Courtney Love. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyway, they became known as the silent twins since they only communicated with each other. They began oh, so writing. They didn't go around saying to everyone, uh, you know, come play with us. Cause that's I mean that's the only creepy twins I know of. You're thinking of the shining, right? I sure am. Okay. No. They began writing works of fiction but turned to crime in a bid for recognition. Both women were committed to Broadmoor Hospital where they were held for fourteen years. Mm. During oh, their early lame. life. June and Jennifer were the daughters of Caribbean immigrants Gloria and Aubrey Gibbons. Gloria was a housewife and Aubrey worked as a technician for the Air Force. Shortly after their birth in Barbados, because I didn't mention this before, they were both actually African-American girls. How can they be African-American if they were born in England? Their family moved to Harvardford, West, Wales. The twin sisters were inseparable. In their particular high speed... Were they Siamese? That would explain it. Uh, no, they weren't Siamese. Wow. Because that's truly inseparable. Inseparable. I didn't, what I didn't say, I was, I was trying to say was that they could, they were super intelligent. Okay. Well, yeah, they were Um, Harvard. (laughs) No, Harvardford West. Okay. West campus. Fine. Because around this time, they would have been doing drugs. Remember? $25 a pop? Yeah. MK Ultra. The twin sisters were inseparable, and their particular high-speed 
interactions made it difficult for people to understand them. As the only black children in the community, they were ostracized at school. Of course. This proved traumatic for the twins, eventually right. causing their school administrators to dismiss them early each day so they might avoid bullying. Good lord. So, that's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Their language became even more idiosyncratic at this time. Soon it was unintelligible to others, so they communicated in a language that no one can, can understand, understand but themselves. And they were called the silent... They were called what? Silent? The silent yes. twins? They became known as the silent twins. Long, okay. I mean... You got under, there's there are movies there are songs there's a song by a band I like called Manic Street Preachers called mm. uh, Tsunami that's actually funny enough a song I always really liked but had no idea that it tied to this but oh, wow. anyway um, when the twins turned 14 a succession of therapists tried unsuccessfully to get them to communicate with others they were sent to separate boarding schools in an attempt to break their isolation but the the Pair became catatonic and entirely withdrawn when parted. Real silent. Yes. When they reunited, the two spent several years isolating themselves in their bedroom, engaged in elaborate play with dolls. They created many plays and stories in a sort of soap opera style, reading some of them aloud on tape as gifts for their sister. They had a younger sister what? that they were really close with. Inspired by a pair of gift diaries at Christmas 1979, they began their writing careers. They sent away from mail order course in creative writing and each wrote several novels set primarily in the United States and particularly, particularly in Malibu, California, an excitingly exotic locale to romantic girls trapped in a sleepy Welsh town. The stories involved young men and women who exhibit strange and often criminal behavior. And they had never been there. Right. Of wow. course. Well, that's it's like most people who have this almost insane vision of LA. Like if you've ever been out to LA in Just California. Got back. Yeah, it's gross. I mean, there's areas that are there's other areas that are like, okay, this this shit is stacked so high mm -hmm. and so close to this the 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 um the coast. I mean, everything is just so overblown, overexpensive. Yeah, tell um, me about the it. People are, the people are so self-obsessed. $20 hamburger. Right. Didn't stop me from um, eating the hamburger. No, never does. <laughs> uh, June Gibbons um, wrote a book, wrote a story called Pepsi Cola Addict. And the story, the high school hero she was She missed out by on a perfect opportunity. Coke addict. <laughs> <laughs> in the book the high school hero was seduced by a teacher then sent away to a reformatory where a homosexual guard makes a play for him in Jennifer's, uh, how you doing in jennifer G gibbon's uh story the pugilist a physician is so eager to save his child's life that he kills the family dog to obtain its heart for a transplant <laughs> no, you, not Woofy. I don't think I don't Chewy's think, heart no, would fit in no, your heart. I don't think so. I think <laughs> Chewy could fit in my heart cavity, my chest cavity. <laughs> the whole dog. We, <laughs> the dog's spirit lives on in the child and ultimately has its revenge against the father. Well, Jennifer, I also, I smell in his balls. <laughs> right, yeah. Is that revenge? No. The dog smells your balls? Dude, like, uh, I, I mean, you get the right dog. They shove it up in your... 
up in your crotch or in your ass and it's like that's uncomfortable i don't have dog like that i was gonna say sound like a turkey <laughs> jennifer also wrote disco mania the story of a young woman who discovers that the atmosphere of a local disco incites patrons to insane violence actually follows like that a good up. one to read it does it actually sounds like a b horror movie that trauma would do yeah for sure she, she followed up with the taxi driver's son a radio play called postman and postwoman and several short stories hmm. okay so here is the ch- here is where things get creepy as if they weren't already all right their novels were published by a self-publishing press called new horizons and they made many attempts to sell short stories to magazines but were unsuccessful hmm. a brief fling with some american boys the sons of a u.s navy serviceman led nowhere the girls committed a number of cl- crimes including arson which led to their being committed to Broadmoor Hospital, which I brought up before. Um, they were there for a while. A high-security mental hospital that they remained at for 14 years. Whoa. Placed on high doses of antipsychotic medication, they found themselves unable to concentrate. Jennifer apparently de- developed tardive di- dyskinesia, a, neuro- a neurological disorder resulting in involuntary repetitive mo- movements, which is kind of like Tourette's, I guess. Their medications, well, yeah. their medications were apparently adjusted sufficiently to allow them to continue the copious diaries they begun in 1980, and they were able to join the hospital choir, but they lost most of their interest in creative writing. Hmm. The case achieved some notice due to newspaper coverage by the Sunday Times journalist Marjorie Wallace. The British tabloid The Sun gave a brief but accurate account of their story, headlined Genius Twins Won't Speak, an apparent reference to their having tested above average intelligence when being considered for Broadmoor Hospital. Now, there was a book written in 1986 called The Silent Twins by John Amiel. Now, this book... Okay, came out before what it's about to follow here. Mm. And to be honest with you, um, I think it had a, I think it, the book had a, almost, it, it was obviously, this is a sad situation because you've got two, two, two girls who were born within seconds of each other, mm-hmm. I'm assuming. And, they're hopefully not at the same they time. Have, they have an ent- yeah that would I Ow. feel bad for you wifey <laughs> or mother. Uh, the the thing is that's just such a from what I can gather from this story they had an intense bond. Being able to talk to only one other person who can understand you or right they have their own special language exactly when you watch the. Which I, I I watched a lot of YouTube videos for this, um, a lot of different like shorts, and then I watched a pretty pretty good long documentary about it on YouTube yesterday mm-hmm. that explained kind of like what they went through and how you know they just it just seems like they wanted to live a normal life, but then they always felt responsible for each other, mm-hmm. um, mostly because they were so similar um and they had the same you know faults and the same desires so according to wallace the girls had a long-standing agreement that if one died the other must begin to speak and live a normal life Hmm. 
During their stay in the hospital, they began to believe that it was necessary for one twin to die. Jeez. And after much discussion, Jennifer agreed to be the sacrifice. Wow. In March 1993, the twins were transferred from Broadmoor to the more open Caswell Clinic in Brigand, Wales. On arrival, Jennifer could not be roused. She was taken to the hospital where she soon died soon after of acute myocardial Conderis, a sudden inflammation of the heart. There was no evidence of drugs or poison in her system, and her death remains a mystery. Well, that, so this that's, is what that's crazy. The fact that they decided that she would be the one to die. And what's really that, yeah, creepy just, is the moment it, that it happened. She literally put her head on her on her sister's shoulder and like just shut off, and that was it. Yeah, like, I think the, I've heard ahead. described that. You feel this impending sense of doom before you die, so you actually kind of know it's happening. Right. Um, there was no evidence of drugs or poison in her system, and her death remains a oh, mystery. Silent. On a visit a few days later, Wallace recounted that June was in a strange mood. She said, I'm free at last, liberated, and at last Jennifer wow. has given up her life for me. Silent After Jennifer's deadly. death, <laughs> June gave How to put anyone interview. down. After June, Jennifer's death, June gave interviews with Harper Bazaar and The Guardian. Especially By after a night of draft was, beer. There you Taco go. Taco Bell. By 2008, <laughs> she was living quietly and independently near her parents in West Wales. She was no longer monitored by psychiatric services, was accepted by her community, and sought to put the past behind whoa, her. Whoa, 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 whoa. So she's so like, she, her twin dies and she becomes a normal person again? Well, yep. no, 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 no. Here's my thing. Here's my According thing. To her all, twin dies and they yep. both agree that she will start talking normally to everyone and then lives a silent lifestyle. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty much it. That's she, a kick uh, in the balls. <laughs> kick in the puss. She, that's, a, um, that's a nip twist. She literally... she And, and, and the, part of the way they decided on uh, the one staying alive and the one dying was that the other one had lived longer. Huh. That's literally it. Wow. Yeah. By seconds. Probably. I mean, I don't know the exact time. Maybe it was an hour. Who knows? But <laughs> yeah, they, I mean, at that point, it's, we're just arguing sem- semantics. Semantics. I mean, it was the same day, obviously. So I guess that's it. But I love the semantics. Oh, the that's tale. the romantics. I like their music. That's the tale of the sw- silent that's twins, fellas. Pretty scary. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I thought it was pretty creepy. So we got one more, and this one is definitely, before we take a break, probably the creepiest of these four, wow. for sure. Now, when you say the creepiest, uh, are you are you implying that when we come back, the next ones will be even creepier? No, I don't know. This one's, this one's rough for me. Really? Um, okay. This, yes. And, I mean... Here's here's part of my promise to you, listeners. Um, we will definitely be posting a video of this. Just said, like we post um, our polls. Shush. Why are you looking at me? We see the numbers. You guys are actually paying attention. So we're going to start trying to be more active on, on the internet. And I definitely want to post this video. Um, so before we get too, too invested, I, I, I do need to preface this a little bit. So... This is about a girl named Elisa Lamb. 
And I don't know if you guys have heard about this, but basically, um, we'll start with that lamb, uh, who was born April 30th, mm-hmm. 1991. Ooh. So like she after is, us. <laughs> yes. Very much after us. Yeah. Um, Lam was the daughter of immigrants from Hong Kong who opened a restaurant in Vancouver. I was hoping you were going to say that uh, her mom was Mary, so I could throw in a Mary had a little lamb joke in there, but nah. <laughs> no, not going to no, happen. You don't, Larry. Hey, you know what? He never did say what the mother's name was. I'm of guessing who? it's not Mary. Her, her name could be anything. It could be Mary. Could be Mary's a is a name that's used around the world. In Hong what are you Kong? talking about, Mary? You're talking about Alicia sure. Lam's mom? Yeah, what's her mom's name? Fuck, I don't know. I have to Google that. <laughs> terrible, terrible research. No, there was research. I've watched. Can we just say okay. her name is Mary then? So I can... Please. All right, Mary Lamb. All right, Mary had a little lamb. There you go. Hey. Cutting all this bullshit right out. It's I can't wait. The light I, I can't wait till I actually say her mom's name and it's like. Ling Tong. Exactly. I'm sorry, that was Mary racist. Lee. Mary Lee Kwong. Alright, so Elisa Lam. Lam was the daughter of immigrants from Hong Kong who opened a restaurant in the Vancouver suburb of Burnaby. She was a student at the University of British Columbia, although she was not registered when she left her home in January 2013 for a trip to Southern California, which she called her West Coast Tour. She said she planned to stop in San Diego, Los Angeles, Santa Cruz, and San Francisco. Okay. While she also hoped to visit visit San Lu San Luis Obispo. Have you guys ever been? You guys? Well, Larry, you just said you were I've out there, right? I've been to LA. I've been to San Diego. I've been to San Francisco. Okay. So you, but you know LA, right? Yeah. Okay. She traveled alone. Not which, a good idea. That was her first. Not mistake. necessarily a good thing. On Amtrak and inner city buses. She visited the San Diego Zoo and posted photos awesome. taken there on social media. On January 26th, she arrived in Los Angeles. After two days, she checked into the Cecil Hotel near downtown's Skid Row. Uh-oh. She was in. Oh. Yeah. Which is a great band. That's yeah, a great punk horrible band. place to visit, though. Right. Unless you like heroin. Um, then it's great. She was initially assigned a shared room on the hotel's fifth floor. Oh, no. <laughs> However, after her roommates complained about what the hotel's lawyer would later describe as certain odd behavior, she was moved to a room on her own after two days. I would do that, too. I would act out until they gave me my own room. Now, this hotel was built as a business hotel in the 1920s. The Cecil fell on hard times during the Great Depression of the 1930s and never recaptured its original market as downtown decayed around it in the late 20th century. Several of Los Angeles' most notable murders have ap- happened here. Wow. Elizabeth Short, victim of the Black Dahlia murder, the city's best-known unsolved kill- killing, supposedly made the Cecil her last stop before her death. Wow. In 1964... Goldie Osgood, the pigeon lady of Pershing Square, was raped and murdered in a room Good at the Cecil. God. Serial nice. killers Jack Unterweger, which I've never heard of, mm-hmm. and Richard Ramirez, who I yes. have heard a shit ton oh, about, yeah. yep. the Night Stalker, both resided at the Cecil while active. They need Girl. to rebrand that place. Cecil, you'll be dying so. to come here. 
<laughs> just the season. As bad as that was, yeah. I had to laugh. Have a killer vacation. Oh God! You know be- if they if they got the right marketing team, mm-hmm. they probably could. And you know I mean, what it's the, the thing West Coast, is? I'm go with some sure sort of stabbing westward reference. Oh no! Oh, I'm looking at Jack Unterweger. By the way, the guy I brought up that I didn't know, he was an Australian serial killer who murdered prostitutes. Wow! And so the police he, probably liked him. He went. He got convicted of murder, but got released in 1990. Became a journalist, a minor celebrity, but within months he couldn't stop himself because he was a psychopath and mm-hmm. started killing again. He committed suicide following his conviction. What a piece of shit! Little side info. Anyway, the killer from down under who kills those who go down under. Oh, man. There's nowhere you won't go. I love you, though. All right. So there's been a lot of suicides. Um, a pedestrian passing in front of the hotel uh, killed himself. Wow. He was also one of the suicide. After recent renovations, it has tried to market itself as a boutique hotel. But <laughs> obviously the reputation lingers. The yeah. Cecil will reveal to you whatever it is you're a fugitive from, said Steve Erickson, who is a Canadian fantasy author. Great. Good to know. Anyway, while traveling, Lamb kept in touch with her parents back in British Columbia daily. On January 31st, 2013, the day she was scheduled to check out of the Cecil and leave for Santa Cruz, they did not hear from her and called the Los Angeles police. So if you don't hear from some... Excuse you. Excuse you! I know. I, I tried to hold that in. I don't think you can hear it on my microphone. No, my I microphone let him loose. Good. No, but... I know you, I know you do. <laughs> Excuse me, Ryan. <laughs> All right. I can smell All right, it so, over the... Uh, Air. I'm sure you can. It probably <laughs> smells like fireball. Uh, <laughs> they did not hear from her and called the LAPD. Now, the funny thing about that to me uh, in reading this, mm-hmm. if you don't hear from somebody after one day, do you call the cops? <sighs> no. Yeah, no. No. Right. The family flew to Los Angeles to help with the search. Hotel staff who saw her that day said she was alone. Outside the hotel, Katie Orphan, the manager of a nearby bookstore, was the only person who recalled seeing Lamb that day. She was outgoing, very lively, very friendly. And actually, I'm looking at a picture of her right now, and she does look that way. Kind of sad. While getting gifts to take home to her family, Orphan told CNN she was talking about what books she was getting and whether or not what she was getting would be too heavy for her to carry because she was, like I said, traveling. Mm Mm-hmm. Police searched the hotel to the extent that they legally could. They searched Lamb's room and had dogs go through the building, including the rooftop, looking unsuccessfully for a scent. But we didn't search every room, Sergeant Rudy Lopez said later. We only could do that if we had probable cause Uh, to believe a crime had been committed. On February 6th, a week after Lamb had been last seen, the LAPD decided more help was needed. Flyers with her image were posted in the neighborhood and online. It brought the case to the public's attention through the media. So this wasn't a girl that would normally go missing. This was somebody who was going to, there was going to be issues. Now, here's where we get to the creepy part. Okay. So 
what brought this whole story to my attention mm-hmm. was found footage. Really? If you look online, you can find massive amounts of creepy, creepy, creepy found footage. Uh, so yeah. This one in particular is of an elevator video. If you search Elisa Lamb, this is the video you're going to come across. Now, another week went by without land being found. On February 14th, the LAPD released a video of the last known sighting of her taken by a video surveillance camera on February 1st in one of the Cecil's elevators. It drew worldwide interest in the case because it went viral. If you watch it, this is scary. This is one of the scariest videos I've ever seen in my entire life because you know... When I finish the story, you'll know what happened, oh, and then shit. you're trying to put it together. So, anyway, it drew worldwide interest in the case due to Lamb's strange behavior and has since been extensively analyzed and discussed, which, I mean, there's Reddit pages, there are things, there's scene-by-scene breakdowns. In the two-and-a-half-minute clip, the camera at one of the elevator cab's rear corners looks down from the ceiling, so you can plain view see her. Okay. Um, offering a view not just of its interior, but the hallway outside. It is somewhat grainy, and the timestamp at the bottom is obscured. At some points, Lamb's mouth is pixelized. Hmm. At the start, Lamb enters, clad in a red zippered hooded sweatshirt over a gray t-shirt with black shorts and sandals. She enters from the left and goes to the control panel. Panel Appears to select several floors and then steps back to the corner. After a few seconds during which the door fails to close, she steps up to it, leans forward so her head is through the door, looks in both directions, and then quickly steps back in. Backing up to the wall and then into the corner near the control panel, door remains open. She walks to it again and stands in the doorway, leaning on the side. Suddenly, she steps out into the hall, then to her side, back in, looking to the side, then back out. She then steps sideways again, the door remains open the whole time. So, so what I can say from this close. is that she is frenetic. She's frantic. Mm-hmm. She's mm-hmm. acting strange. So it, it seems normal at first, and then slowly gets more like odd. It's okay. as if she sees something coming, and she's just frantically exactly. coming in and trying to figure out why this door is not closing. Then going back out again and looking right. and frantically coming back. In. It's it, I've seen the video wow. that you're talking about. It is it is terrifying. Okay. Her right arm can be seen going up to her head, and then she turns to re-enter the cab, putting both hands on the side of the door as she does. She goes to the control panel, presses many more buttons, some more than once, and then returns to the wall she had come to the elevator from, putting both hands over her ears. Briefly, as she walks back to the section of the wall she'd been standing against before, the door still remains open. She turns to her right begins rubbing her forearms together, then waves her hands out to her sides and palms flat, fingers outstretched, while bowing forward slightly and rocking gently. This can all be seen through the door, which remains open. After she backs the wall again and walks away to the left, it finally closes. Oh, it, re- it was reposted widely, including to the Chinese video sharing site, Yuku, where it got Yuku. 3 million views. Yuku. Where it got 
3 million views and 40,000 comments in its first 10 days. Many of the commentators found it too unsettling to watch. Wow. I'm so scared. I'm shaking. I'm numb, said one. Several theories evolved to explain her actions. One noting that Cecil's dark past posited that she had somehow become possessed during her stay, or at least on the elevator. She might also have been playing the elevator game, a supposed way to travel to another dimension and back. Another suggestion was that Lamb was trying to get the elevator car to move in order to escape from someone pursuing her. That's how Others involving include a body language specialist who reviewed the video suggested that she might be under the influence of ecstasy or some other party drug. When her her bipolar disorder became known, the theory that she was having a psychotic episode also emerged. Another viewer argued that the video had been tampered with before being made public. Despite the obscuring of the timestamp, he claimed parts had been slowed down and they claimed nearly a minute of footage had been discreetly removed. This could have been done simply to protect the identity of someone who otherwise would be in the video but had little or nothing to do with the it's case. It's amazing or how dis- many experts there are on the internet. Of course. Or to conceal evidence if Lamb's disappearance and death had been the result of a criminal act. We're reaching the finale. Uh, let me let me ask you guys, what do you guys think happened? Well, I know what happened, so I'm not going to say. Well, I mm. don't, so I'm going to guess. That Go for it, Larry. I'm thinking somebody was after her. I mean, that's the most... Okay. Li- it seems like the most likely scenario. The next morning, they found her at the breakfast bar enjoying a bagel with cream cheese. <laughs> and and this story meant nothing. No. All right. We'll, we'll go for... The, we're going to... I'm not even going to speculate. I, I think you're right, Larry. I think somebody was after her. While the search for Lamb was raising the case's media profile, guests at the hotel began complaining to management about low water pressure in their rooms. Hmm. Some also claimed their water was oddly colored and had a slightly unusual smell. Oh, no. Employees Employees began investigating. In the morning of February 19th, an employee went to the roof where four 1,000-gallon water tanks provided water pumped from the city's supply the guest rooms in the kitchen and the coffee shop downstairs. In one of them, he found Lamb's body. Oh, gross. Floating face up a foot between the water service. Oh, gross. Oh. Police responded, and by noon the, the, that day, the hotel had drained the tank so firefighters could cut it open and remove the body since the opening of the tank was too small to accommodate the necessary equipment. We've switched these patrons' regular coffee with this special body-flavored coffee. Let's see if they notice. <laughs> You know what? This all ties into this all ties into um, what I said about uh, the first like biological weapons of like dead <laughs> yeah. bodies from the Slinging them? from the yeah oh yeah yeah Genghis Khan and his his goons were throwing them at the <clears throat> all the other people man big old burp for that in the wake of all the discovery of. Cecil's short-term guests left, many expressing revulsion at the mm-hmm. thought that they had unknowingly been drinking water contaminated by a decomposing body for oh, the preceding God. two weeks. Oh, a bunch of sissies. Yeah, I'm one of them. The hotel paid for some to relocate and required those that remained to sign a waiver saying that they had been made aware of the health risks. Reviewing making light of the situation were posted on hotel's Yelp page while the site 
While the country's health department found that the water had not actually been contaminated, it issued a do not drink order and required that the entire system be drained and refilled before retesting for possible fecal contamination. Martha, this tea is so full of body. After being removed from the (laughs) tank, Lamb's body was taken to the county coroner's office to be autopsied. Two pathologists, Jason Tovar and Jalei Wang, spent four hours that afternoon dissecting it and examining her internal organs. On February 21st, the coroner's office reported they found her death to be an accidental drowning, which is bullshit. Yeah, right. With, bipol- with bipolar disorder as a significant factor. Their full report mm-hmm. was released four months later in June, and after being postponed several times, they reported that her body had been found naked in the tank, about half to three quarters full, with the clothes she appeared to have been wearing an elevator video floating in the water alongside her, coated with a sand-like particulate along with them were her watch and room key. Lamb's body was moderately decomposed, bloated and mostly greenish, with some marbling evident on the abdomen and skin separation evident. Well, that's where the flavor comes from, the marbling. That is terrible. Marbling, man, that's where you get all that flavor. Okay, guys. Call Guy Fieri. This isn't a Ponderosa. This isn't a Ponderosa. We're talking about a girl who died. (laughs) What a reference. and Wang had a rape and a fingernail kit done, but found no evidence Hmm. of physical trauma or sexual assault. They found no evidence to suggest that Lamb had committed suicide either. Toxicology tests were done on her blood where a sufficient quantity was available. Some metabolites and traces of prescription medication were found consistent with blister packs and loose pills. Those drugs found among her belongings, along with some non-prescription drugs such as Sinitab and Ibuprofen. Okay. And 0.02 grams percent of alcohol, but no other recreational drugs were Hmm. found in her system. Weird. So... Um, the investigator determined how Lamb died, but did not offer an explanation as how she got in the tank. Doors and stairs that access the hotel's roof are locked, with only staff having the passcodes and keys, and any attempt to force them would supposedly have triggered an alarm. However, the hotel's fire escape could, could have allowed her to bypass the security measure if she or someone had accompanied her there. Apart from the question of how she got on the roof, Others asked if she could have gotten in the tank by herself. All four tanks are four by eight feet. Cylinders propped up on concrete blocks. There is no fixed access to them. Mm. Hotel workers had to use a ladder to look at the water. They are protected by heavy lids that would be difficult to replace from within. Police dogs that searched through the hotel for Lamb, even on the roof shortly after her disappearance was noted, did not find any trace of her. It was recalled although they had not searched the area near the water tank. Theories about Lamb's behavior in the elevator video did not stop with her death. Some argued that she was attempting to hide from a pursuer, perhaps someone ultimately responsible for her death, while others said she was merely frustrated with the elevator's apparent malfunction. The proponents of the theory that she was under the influence of illicit drugs are not persuaded by their absence the toxicology screen suggesting that they might have broken down during the period of time her body was decomposing hmm. which makes sense but that she might have taken rare cocktails of such drugs that a normal screen would not detect the autopsy report and its conclusions have been questioned for instance it does not say what the result of the rape and fingernail kits were or even if they were processed it also records the sub 
subcutaneous pooling of blood in Lamb's anal area, Ew. which some observers suggest was a sign of sexual abuse. There's that flavoring abuse. again. However, one pathologist has noted it also have resulted from bloating in the course of the body's decom- decomposition. Mm-hmm. Even Tovar and Wang appeared to be ambivalent about their conclusion that Lamb's death was accidental. One page of the report has a form with boxes to check as to whether the death was accidental, natural, homicide, suicide, or undetermined in large type in a sufficient distance from each other. The accident box is dated June 15th. However, three days later, the undetermined box was checked. This was at some point in the three days before the report's release, known as an error and crossed out an initial. Since her death, her Tumblr blog has been updated, presumably through Tumblr's Q option, which allows posts to automatically publish themselves mm-hmm. when the user is away. Her phone was not found either with her body or in her hotel room. It has been assumed to have been stolen at some point around her death. Whether the continued updates to her blog were facilitated by the theft of her phone, the word of a hacker or through the queue is not known, hmm. nor is it known whether the updates are related to her death. Hmm. So, yes, the fifth season of American Horror Story was inspired by Lamb's death. Really? In late spring, creator Ryan Murphy said the next season would be set in a hotel in present-day Los Angeles. He was inspired he added by a surveillance video of a young woman who got in an elevator at a downtown hotel and was never seen again. I thought I would throw that in there, but that's the only pop culture I can think of that goes with that. So yeah, killing that's me, man. Uh, killing me. That, I know, that's the one I thing I knew about it, like that the uh, the Hotel Cortez yeah. is based on that, just solely based on that story, which is nuts. Yeah, and the, the scary thing is it's true it's a true story about a girl who went up to a room and Die died in a water container. Wow. Alright, well let's take a quick break. Yes. And uh, when we come back, we are going to tell some more spooky tales. Yes, more spooky tales. Back from our break and ready, ready for scary, scary tales, scary stories. On October thirty first, nineteen seventy four, Timothy O'Brien and a oh. neighbor took their four children trick or treating in Pasadena, Texas neighborhood. After visiting an, a home where the occupant failed to answer the door, the children grew impatient and ran ahead to the next home while O'Brien stayed behind. He eventually caught up with the group and produced five 21-inch pixie sticks. Yeah! At the end of... Yeah, I know I like pixie I sticks, too. too. By Those the way, the the, this, this section uh, comes from Killer Legends. It's a documentary that's on Netflix. You should check it out. Okay. Anyway... O'Brien gave two of the sticks to his neighbor's two children and one each to Timothy and Elizabeth. 
Upon returning home, O'Brien gave the fifth piece piece of candy to a 10-year-old boy whom he recognized from his church. Before bed, Timothy O'Brien asked to eat some of the candy he had collected, Mm -hmm. choosing the pixie stick. Timothy was unable to get the powder candy out of the straw, so O'Brien helped him loosen the powder. You guys used to go trick-or-treating as kids. Absolutely. What... Did you guys ever hear any urban legends about people giving, like, razors and yeah, the apples? razor blades in the can. Poison in the, yeah. the Reese's Pieces. And I heard all that was actually bullshit. There's actually never been a case of that happening. The only thing I've ever heard of razors being in apples. any kind of... Well, Which no. is why I don't well, eat fruit to this day. <laughs> I, I've heard of people putting razors in dog treats. <gasps> yeah, and I've heard that. And throwing Those them are piece of shit, people. Yeah. Those yeah. people actually need to be hung. Um, I agree, considering every time I see you're right, Ryan. a movie where yeah. like a kid dies, I'm like, oh, that sucks. But then I see a dog die, and I'm bawling. Wow, you're weird. <laughs> if I see a kid die, I'm bawling. So, Timothy... Uh, and I'm O'Brien. the parent! I know, that's the weird part. I don't have... I have a dog, but no kids. So, hold on, hold on, hold on. I said that wrong. I said... Uh, O'Brien and a neighbor took the kids trick-or-treating and I said, Timothy, it was actually Ronald Clark O'Brien that took his kids trick-or-treating. I just want to make sure that I Gotta edit the, myself don't on, get well, sued. on the fly. All right. Poor Timothy. Ronald O'Brien later... Oh, 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 oh I'm a couple sentences. Okay, so... <laughs> So the kids want to they want to eat candy before bed. Yeah. We all did it. It's a we want to have a few want to you want to taste the the fruits of your labor exactly. because you know running up to people and saying unless it's actual we'll fruit. Get, <laughs> right, exactly. What is this? <laughs> I don't need this. Give me a salad. Uh, this is trick or treat. <laughs> Timothy <laughs> was unable because like I said before he picked the pixie stick. Mm-hmm. He was unable to get the powdered candy out of the straw. Mm-hmm. So Ronald O'Brien helped him loosen the powder, and after tasting the candy, Timothy complained that it tasted bitter. So Brian gave him some Kool-Aid to wash away the taste. Timothy immediately began to complain that his stomach hurt, Uh and he ran to the bathroom where he began vomiting, and then he started to convulse. Oh, no! O'Brien later claimed he held Timothy while he was vomiting, and the child went limp in his arms. Oh, shit. Timothy O'Brien died en route to the hospital less than an hour after consuming this candy. (sighs) Timothy's death from poisoned Halloween candy prompted fear in the community. Numerous parents in Deer Park and the surrounding area returned candy their children acquired from trick-or-treating to police, fearing it was laced with poison. Now, he... How did he not remember where this came from? Like, they could have gone right to... Remember what I said before. I said, after visiting a home where the occupant failed to answer the door, the children grew impatient and ran ahead. They ran ahead. You would remember that because they ran ahead. Right. But, but... Plus, this is the, the only house. place you got pixie sticks. Of course. So, there was some search and... Believe me, the police do get involved. Okay, let me, okay. Let, me, let me keep going through this so you can get an idea. O'Brien initially told police that he could not remember which house he got the pixie sticks from. Police became suspicious because they didn't understand... Because O'Brien and his neighbor had only taken the children to homes on two streets because it became because it started raining. Okay, which sucks if you're out there in your Halloween costume and your makeup's running and you actually look like a monster. 
their suspicions increased after learning that none of the homes the group had visited had handed out pixie sticks. After walking the neighborhood with police three times, O'Brien led them to the home that the group visited, but whose occupant did not answer the door. Creepy. Uh, O'Brien claimed that he revisited the home before catching up with his group. He said the owner of the home did not turn the lights on, but cracked the door and handed him five pixie sticks. He claimed to have seen only the man's arm, which he described as hairy. Okay. The home was owned by a man named Courtney Melvin. Oh, now, no. who has oh, a no. girl's name and then Melvin? <laughs> what were you going to say, Larry? Go ahead. I'm just waiting for Josh to throw his Courtney Love joke in. <laughs> I got nothing. Okay. Okay. He's going to save it for Courtney later. Courtney Love's dad. <laughs> Courtney Melvin. Melvin, was an Melvin tr- Courtney. We got Melvin a hack story coming, right? Melvin was an air traffic controller at Hobby Airport and did not get home from work until 11 p.m. on Halloween night. So police had to rule Melvin out as a suspect. When whoa, 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 200- whoa, whoa, whoa. What? So. So he wasn't so, even home. Right. Right. So police ruled Melvin out as a suspect when nearly 200 people confirmed that Melvin was in fact at work. Holy shit. As their investigation furthered, police learned that Ronald O'Brien... Brian, Brian, Because he's a Texas man. Ronald O'Brien was over $100,000 in debt. In the 10 years preceding the crime, O'Brien held 21 jobs. At the time of his arrest, he was suspected of theft at his job at Texas State Optical and was close to being fired. His car was about to be repossessed. It defaulted on several bank loans, and he'd already lost his house. Police discovered that O'Brien had taken out a large life insurance policy on his children in the months preceding oh, Timothy's no. death. Oh, fuck. In that January is- 1974, he had taken out a $10,000 life insurance policy on both of his children. Wow. One month before Timothy's death, O'Brien took out an additional $20,000 policy on both children, despite the objections of his life insurance agency. In the days preceding Timothy's death, O'Brien had taken out yet another $20,000 policy on each child. The various policies totaled approximately $60,000. O'Brien's wife maintained that she did not know about the policies or on her children's life. Police also learned that on the morning after Timothy's death, O'Brien had called his insurance company to inquire about collecting the policies he had taken out on his son. After learning that O'Brien had visited a chemical supply store in Houston to buy cyanide shortly before Halloween 1974. For real? Well, well, you can buy cyanide? I guess. In in the 1970s? In 1974, you could probably buy whatever you want. This isn't the year 2016 when you got to get an armed guard to get you Benadryl. <laughs> I want something for my allergies. My head's like Excuse fifteen sizes bigger. I could use some allergy medication right now. We could save all the melon heads right now. Uh, <laughs> well, there's one. Uh, he left without purchasing anything after learning the smallest amount available to purchase was five pounds of cyanide. <laughs> Police began to suspect that Ronald O'Brien killed his son. Police theorized that O'Brien had laced the candies with poison in an effort to kill his children to collect on their life insurance policies. That is fucked. 
They believed he gave the other children the candy in an effort to cover up his crime. The other children never consumed the candy. Yeah, I wouldn't either. Police police repeatedly questioned O'Brien, but he maintained his innocence till the day he died. Oh, they couldn't nail him on it? Oh, no, it gets worse. Oh, shit. Although the police never discovered when or where O'Brien bought the poison, he was indicted for one count of capital murder and four counts of attempted murder. He was arrested on November 5th, 1974. So, you know, not too too long After About a month later, yeah. Yeah. Entered a plea of not guilty to all five counts. O'Brien's trial began in Houston on May 5th, 1975. During the trial, a chemist who was acquainted with O'Brien testified that in the summer of 1973, O'Brien contacted him asking about cyanide and how much would be fatal. A chemical supply salesman also... Uh, this is before we had Google. Right. But then again, they can trace everything, so it doesn't really yeah. matter. A chemical supply salesman also testified that O'Brien had asked him how to purchase cyanide. Friends and co-workers testified that the months before Timothy's death, O'Brien showed an unusual interest in cyanide. Just go on Amazon. How much it would take. (laughs) Prime shipping, baby. Exactly. Um... He wanted to know how much it would take to kill a person. O'Brien's sister-in-law and brother-in-law testified that on the day of Timothy's funeral, he spoke of using the money from Timothy's insurance policy to take a long vacation and buy other items. By the way, why does he bring that up at the funeral? O'Brien continued to probably because he doesn't have any friends and he feels like he can talk to them. O'Brien continued to maintain his innocence. His defense mainly drew upon the decades-old urban legend concerning a mad poisoner who hands out candy laced with poison or needles or candy apples with razor blades inserted. While this legend is often cited as being true and other cases have been falsely linked to it, there are virtually no documented cases of any such event. The case and subsequent trial garnered a national attention, and the press dubbed O'Brien the Candy uh, Man. The can- fucking clever group. <laughs> On June third, nineteen seventy-five, a jury took forty-six minutes to find O'Brien guilty of capital murder and four counts of attempted murder. The jury took seventy-one minutes to sentence him to death. Shortly after he was convicted, his wife filed for divorce. She later remarried. I'm sorry. No one's going to know what just happened. Just Josh, Josh just bashed himself right in the face with his microphone. <laughs> I had to move some stuff around. Okay, so even though no one will actually see it or anything. Yeah, my uh, I, be, I use wireless headphones, and uh, the battery just died on them. So while Ryan was doing all this, I had to switch some stuff over. Oh, God, and one of the things hilarious. I had to do was move my microphone. Right near skull. And, yeah, it just bash me right in the head. <laughs> Good it's job, a conspiracy. Buddy. Or it's it the is. bottle of wine I just had. Yeah, it could be. You guys you guys want to hear the end of this story? Absolutely not. No? Okay. Yeah, I do. Actually, I'm no. really interested. This is crazy. So Ronald O'Brien was confined to the Huntsville unit in Huntsville, Texas. According to Reverend Carol Pickett, a a former chaplain who worked for the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, O'Brien was shunned and despised by his fellow death row inmates, killing a child, and was absolutely friendless his whole time. The inmates reportedly conditioned. The the inmates reportedly in prison. I know, man. I'm surprised he (laughs) wasn't. He wasn't a pedo either. He was like worse than a pedo. Like, yeah, he's well, yeah. Well, it's, own, it's his own Sonny, and he it's attempted insane. to kill everybody. Like, I don't have kids, and I've heard that, the like, once you do, like... It, uh, things change. Things change, but at this point, I'm just disgusted by this man. Oh, absolutely, and that's the thing. I think 
even anybody I know that doesn't want kids, this is a kind of story that's so fucked up that you're that you just want this guy to not Pri- live a happy life at all. I mean, she, he, I want he prison really, justice. Absolutely. I mean this this guy should have been fed with a, a pound of cyanide up his ass. Yeah, they so, they don't take lightly to killing kids in prison. No, they don't. Okay, so the inmates reportedly petitioned to hold an organized demonstration on O'Brien's execution date to express there their hatred go. of him. He was despised, obviously. So O'Brien's first execution date was set for August 8th, 1980. And actually, I want to sidestep this a little bit because I saw an interview with him during the um, documentary I watched, Killer, Killer Legends, uh, which was made by the guy who did the Cropsey documentary, which is also excellent if you get a chance to see it about a insane asylum. Um, that's all I do now, folks. That's why I love the show. So, <laughs> anyway, um, the, the, the interview with him, you see no remorse in this guy. What's, what's really disgusting is he, he's worse than you probably imagine. Um, the Candyman... The real Candyman. I think this is. I think we can say this. From guy Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory. No, this the guy Candyman. wasn't even. You know what? He's I was going to make. Yeah. He's 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 not even worth it. And I'm glad we can only. We're only going to tell this story once because he's a piece of shit. Right. So anyway, his his first executions date was set, and his attorney successfully petitioned for a stay of execution. He thought that he could get around the death penalty. A second date was scheduled for May 25th, 1982. That date was also postponed. Judge Michael McSpadden scheduled a third execution date for October 31st, 1982, which is great. The eighth being at Halloween, the eighth anniversary of the crime, and he offered to personally drive O'Brien to the death chamber. People wanted him dead. Right. It was to have been the first time Texas executed an inmate by lethal injection. The Supreme Court delayed the date yet again, unfortunately, to give O'Brien a chance to pursue an appeal to seek a new trial. Uh, the fourth date was scheduled for March 31st, 1984. O'Brien's lawyer sought a fourth stay on the basis that lethal injected injection was a cruel and unusual punishment. Uh, on March but it isn't. On March 28th, the federal judge rejected the request so that on March 31st, 1984, shortly after midnight, O'Brien was executed by lethal injection the Huntsville unit. In his final statement, O'Brien maintained his innocence, stating that he felt the death penalty was wrong. He added, I forgive all, and I do mean all, those who have been involved in my death. God bless you all. May God's bless, best blessings be always yours. During the execution, a crowd of 300 demonstrators... 300? What an odd measurement of people. No, <laughs> no sorry. A crowd of 300 demonstrators <laughs> gathered outside the prison cheering while some yelled, trick or treat. Others showed anti-death penalty demonstrators with candy. I, I know this is probably controversial for some reason, but I'm pro-death penalty in some cases and this is one uh, of them i'm sorry i i think that he uh he kind of got off lightly by doing lethal injection yeah 
firing squad. I feel squad, like this asshole needed no he even been firing candy. squad. That was still that'd be still too too friendly because for a firing squad you get shot and you die like because they, they go for a, a killing shot obviously. Right. So no, no this um, asshole should have had like little cuts to his body and then like salt on the wounds and I know that sounds fun but in all seriousness that would be in violation of the constitution. Oh, I get what him. you're saying, though. I know, I know, but we do need to maintain some sort of order. Uh, decapitation is good, then. There we go. I like that. With a rusty razor. <laughs> how about how about okay. uh, suffocation by uh, Courtney Love sitting on his face? <laughs> oh, that's that's just too cruel. Is that cruel and unusual? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Nobody right. deserves that. Talk Except about Courtney right. Love. <laughs> you silly bastards. Okay. All right. We've got three more to go and then we're done. So here we go. This is a doll story. Sweet. Uh, now keep in mind, <laughs> do you these not are like, all real. No, no, no. Josh, do you if not you don't like, like dolls? Chucky, uh, this, dolls oh, no. are creepy, man. Oh, this is going to get a, you. clowns and dolls now, on uh, Josh's I was, no-no I list. Was, my, uh, I, was, I mean, I... It's not super super bad. I just yeah, dolls are creepy. I think okay. like those porcelain dolls. Oh, the porcelain but ones you, can get look really creepy. Yeah, it's it's specifically like the porcelain ones. But I tell you what, my wife, mm-hmm. not not uh, every single doll she like she won't touch a Chucky movie. Really? Yeah. Oh no. Wow. Well, don't tell. Don't let her listen to this because holy cow, is this the scariest doll story in all? the world i can tell you that for a fact wow i was cued into this i was cued into this by a great (laughs) podcast that everyone should check out called lore okay um they did an episode basically where they talked just give our competition some uh free advertising it's it they're not a competition (laughs) are they giving us great because it takes they (laughs) okay check out conspiracy therapy show (laughs) at gmail.com conspiracy t show on twitter no okay so good one This story is about Robert the Doll. Bob the Doll. Robert did it. That's the explanation young Gene Otto gave whenever chaos and disorder visited his Key West family home. Hmm. In 1904, when he was four years old, Gene received a three foot four doll (laughs) in a sailor uniform. It is big. That's it. I didn't think about that until I read the dimensions. Um, He received this three foot four doll in a sailor uniform from the family's bohemian maid. Gene named the doll Robert after himself. His full name was Robert Eugene Otto and began carrying him everywhere. At night, Gene's parents overheard him having conversations with Robert. He would talk in his usual voice. And a different voice would reply. Mr. and Mrs. Otto assumed that Gene was using a put-on voice to speak as Robert. As the years passed, they I can began understand to question that. this assumption. As Gene grew up, Robert remained his constant companion. The ball, the the ball, the doll <laughs> had his, his own chair. Was he Lance Armstrong? Don't go I away, buddy man. You. You're the only one I got. That's why the ball wasn't plural. <laughs> Sorry. What a nut. (laughs) (laughs) 
The doll had his own chair at the dinner table and shared Gene's bed every night. Whenever Gene experienced one of his frequent fits of rage, he would blame it on Robert. He also attributed odd occurrences of upturned furniture and scattered silverware to the doll. Hmm. When Gene got married, his consigned Robert... He, he, I'm sorry. He consigned Robert to the turret room of the house. He had a turret What's a room? Turret like the room. turret room? Yeah. Like, I said the same thing. Is that the room where like Han Solo runs down and says, don't get too cocky, kid? <laughs> Kids walking past the Victorian mansion claim they saw Robert scowling at them <laughs> and appearing in different windows between morning and afternoon. What you looking at, Willis? The doll remained in the turret until Gene and his wife Anne died in the mid-70s. Tenants who lived at the house thereafter spoke of hearing giggles and seeing a change in the doll's expression from day to day. No. In 1994, Robert joined the collection of Key West or East Martello Museum, where he now sits in a glass box holding a toy lion. On the wall behind him are apologetic letters addressed to Robert from people who took his photo without permission. You can visit Robert at the museum during the day or at night when the rest of the exhibits are closed. Museum admission does not include a free frogurt. <laughs> Is that a frog yogurt? I guess so. Mm. Wow. So, according to what I read and what I researched, um, this doll is really scary. I want um, to know more about the the letters that people are writing because that's that seems yeah. strange. Sounds like like they're taking pictures and then having something bad happen to them, and they gotta go well, and apologize. That's the thing about Robert the doll. That's really creepy. He he um. He is really old. Um, so, you know, obviously, to this day, Robert remains at the, that museum. He's in his sailor suit. He's got the line. He's continuing his menacing ways, according to everybody who's seen him. Hmm. Um, so, according to robertthedoll.org... <laughs> the fucking website. Robert is one of a kind. He's handmade by the Steiff Company of Germany around the turn of the century, standing Ooh. 40 inches tall. That's big doll. And stuffed with wood wool known as Excelsior. Wood? Excelsior. We want to get wood. He is dressed in a sailor suit and once bore painted features not unlike those of a jester. Hmm. His unusual size indicates that he doll, may have Josh. been fashioned in the image of his constant companion, a boy named Robert Otto. So, I keep going over this because it's super creepy to me. Um, the picture. I want to. I think on top of that video of uh, Elisa Lamb, we definitely have to show up. Throw up a picture of. Um, Robert this is just nuts he well, carried this doll throughout his entire life he died with this doll but, okay he was given this doll when he was three he kept it his whole life 
In fact, it made his wife mad, so he had to put the doll in, the in like another room. room. Yeah. Yes, in the turret room with the machine guns and the laser beams. And it made her mad. Or it didn't make her mad, it made him mad. Um, there was a really, really creepy moment where they actually caught the doll like spying on them. <laughs> Doesn't matter, had sex. It's creepy, man. I'm well, just the fact saying, that it I can change its I facials. Didn't do a judge. I, I tried to. I tried to d- distill all the facts about mm-hmm. Robert, but well, the, the fact, doll is creepy. The fact that you're saying that it can change its facial features—that's creepy. That's right. that's extremely creepy. It, um, and I, I, I really would like to know more uh, about the letters that's that's what sparked my interest like is there a thing where if they take the picture of this this doll yeah there's creepy stuff happening at their house and uh they find out that you have to apologize for it to stop or (laughs) some young girl takes a selfie with a peace sign and duck lips and then two weeks later she's got coming with a letter because she fucked up i'm just saying man this doll looks creepy it's not it's not anything other than that. Hmm. You know, Chucky did the same thing back in his day. That was way after Robert the Doll, but Robert the Doll is still kicking. He's got his he's got his place and actually there was a movie that came out I think this year called The Doll. Or the Isn't Boy. that about Annabelle? No, 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 no. It was more recent than that. It's uh after Annabelle. Well, no, there's but yes. It, it, well, I'm sorry. It just it it. That's what it reminds me of is the story of Annabelle, which is a is a story about the doll coming to life and uh doing horrific things. But I don't know if that is a direct correlation to or the story Ooh. or not. Hold on. When. All this stuff happened and Eugene passed away. The new owners actually found Robert in the attic. They had a young daughter who became terrified of the doll, claiming that it wanted and even tried to kill her. To this day, she repeats that story according to fans of the the tale. In 1994, Robert the doll finally left the Victorian mansion of Eaton Street and made his home well at the museum I talked about. And now museum workers are just as terrified. Wow. There's a lot of links for this, but we're going to move on because Robert, you know what? Fuck you. (laughs) Fuck you, Bob. You're just just a doll. All right. Last two. All right. Here we go, guys. Now, according to bloodydisgusting.com, this is the scariest. (laughs) That sounds like a really naughty disgusting porn site you and your Bloody Japanese porn Josh hey Tentacles, man. man these guys know horror pass me a couple DVDs so, that'd be awesome I got you <clears throat> yeah according to these guys there is ultimately literally the scariest video you can find that's a big claim that's a yeah that's a pretty massive claim well 
There have been a handful of films that head deep into the legendary catacombs of Paris, France. Oh, no. I've heard, I've heard the catacombs have a lot of dead bodies in them. Yeah. Oh, man. I don't know. I've heard some stories about those catacombs, and if it's anything like any of those, or if it is one of those, man, everything I've heard is creepy as hell. Wow. Okay. Well, we will have this video posted as well. Yeah, just like our polls. Built for religious practice. <laughs> Shh. Larry? Hey. Back okay. of the bus. <laughs> These tombs are also the place of mass desecration. Millions of bodies Ugh. were exhumed from Paris cemeteries. Jesus, guys. That wasn't me. Do we need... Man, <laughs> I'm getting blamed for everything. I haven't done shit. I've been drinking water. I said, I, I said guys. I didn't blame you. Well, there's only like three of us. <laughs> He's sorry. talking in first person. Bur- <laughs> Built for religious practice with the bones of a shit. I mean, they're human damn beings. It. These tombs are also the place of mass desecration. Millions of bodies were exhumed from Paris cemeteries and dumped deep into the catacombs. While homeless find shelter in the catacombs, visitors need a tour guide to avoid getting lost in the seven levels of the 200-mile 200-mile network of old caves, tunnels, and quarries. Wow. The criminally underrated as above, so below took horror fans deep into the catacombs in a fresh take on the found footage subgenre. While many of these found footage horror films claim to be inspired by true stories, as above, so below does not, which is weird considering there is a true story just as terrifying. And that's what I'm talking about today. (sighs) Years ago, ABC Family. Okay. (laughs) That's the first problem. Let me just tell you. ABC Family. Let me guess. Olsen Twins. Family aired a special on the catacombs. Starring the Olsen Twins. Which focused on a camcorder discovered deep within. So think about that for a second. They did a history kind of thing about the catacombs. Right. And it was about a camcorder that they found. Okay. Someone misplaced a camcorder. In the catacombs. Right. That's fucking creepy. Mm-hmm. Not really. As, well, coming from ABC Family, that seems weird. Right. It does. Allegedly in the early After 90s... After our Amanda's- Catacombs movie, tune in for Full House. Go, Dave Cool. Yay! Cut it Allegedly- out. Isn't it ironic? Don't you think? You guys are... On your wedding Allegedly, in the early 90s, a man decided he'd explore the catacombs on his own. He never resurfaced. Although his camcorder and cassette were found, what's on it will give you chills. In the video, you'll see the man at 288 feet below street level catch a glimpse of something, panic, and begin to run. He eventually drops the camcorder, which continues to film the nothingness of the catacombs. You know, straight out of a found footage horror movie. The ABC documentary alleges that the location of this event is what's truly terrifying. The entrance to the gates of hell. Mm, metal. Now, is this like when uh, 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 Geraldo Rivera watched- was digging into the uh, tomb of uh, Al Capone? 
Did you ever see that? I, I've i never seen that, but... Probably because you were too young. I'm an old man, so I saw that. And it came up with, like, a beer bottle. That was about it. Well, here's the thing. The catacombs are off-limits to the public. Really? If you're caught there exploring, you can actually be fined up to 60 euros, which is... This sucks. Mm, that sounds delicious. <laughs> <laughs> A little the extra cucumber of, sauce on that. Mm, mm, mm. The um, the pictures of the catacombs are so creepy, though. Like the way that I feel like it's just bored centuries. I I don't know. Um, these skull. It also reminds me of Total Recall when they're underground but anyway uh, this is this is a real video you can actually find it the man goes crazy at the end and he drops his camcorder and you can hear something chasing him Ooh. and it is and they, we we can see this on youtube oh yeah, oh, fuck oh, yeah. like i said elisa lamb and this are the two are the two Ugh. biggest um youtube holy shits that i came across but Damn. Um, like I said, you can't go there to visit. Um, oh, supposedly around six million dead skulls are down there. It's just how many? It's creepy. Six million. Fuck, <laughs> it's a lot. Well, that I mean, just you said you have two hundred some odd miles of catacombs. True. It makes True. sense. You're right. It's the empire of the dead, my friend. So that'll bring us to our last. <sighs> Creepy, creepy, crawly. The last story. The ultimate pee your pants slumber party horror story. If you're looking for a spooky story, you're in luck. A hundred percent real. You're in hundred percent. Yeah, pee your pants. A teenage girl is shaken when she starts receiving threatening, obscene phone calls, but she manages to convince herself there's nothing to worry about. This is as the plot is, to scream. That's what I was about to say. As usual, the case, teenage yeah. intuition is dead wrong, and she later discovers the creep on the other end of the line was within striking distance the entire time. As in, you know, there's a stranger in the house. Which... They're under let's, your bed. Let's be I honest. Mean, that's scary as hell. That I mean, it is. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's why I saved this for the end. That's why I pack heat. That's why I eat tacos. Let's pack you it. follow me. I'm gonna give heat. you some stanky clouds. Stanky clouds. <laughs> All right. The truth. In July of 2014, according to Crack.com. There's a reliable source. A 16-year-old girl from Chester, England. Okay. Again with Europe? Mm -hmm. Okay. Whatever. It could be Florida. Unexpectedly, she found herself in the middle of basically every every slasher movie ever. The girl started receiving messages from a local 18-year-old sweet talker named Kyle. Who texted that he was watching her and that he wanted her to awaken to the sight of him hanging outside her window. And those were just his suave opening lines. What At a, midnight, what a our charmer. protagonist 
<laughs> At midnight, our protagonist received another terrifying text as she was getting ready for bed. I'm in your house. I'm hung. <laughs> William hung. <laughs> <laughs> I, this, so yeah, this story is too creepy. Like, it's so creepy that I, if I don't make fun of it, it'll scare it's gonna you. bother me. Ah, uh, self-defense mechanism. Yeah. Okay, hold on. True to genre traditions, <laughs> our victim wrote the text off as a joke and didn't bother to call the police. The girl would sleep most of the night in her mom's bed, but later when she returned to her room, she noticed a row of shoe boxes she kept beside her bed had been disturbed. This is the part where you cover your eyes and beg the hapless teenager to not look under the bed, <laughs> even though you know she's totally going to. Sure enough, she looked and found Kyle had been lurking under her bed all along. Thankfully, the girl escaped. But you know she's going to be checking at her mattress with a flashlight every night. A flashlight? She's 80. <laughs> a flashlight? A flashlight. A flashlight. Do you guys want one more? Because we just went eight. Bonus? That's finishing. She made it out. Yeah, so it's not so creepy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He was going to do it. With the flashlight. <laughs> no, with the flashlight. <laughs> <laughs> I wanna, I'm gonna slap you to death with this. <laughs> Things are awesome. It's like, swing, me? it's like swinging around a limp sausage. <laughs> I recommend one actually. They're lube hogs, though. Do you guys want one more last creepy tale? Yes. Sure. I'd like right. one last creepy tale. Give me one more moist adventure for the road. All right. Ew. So I'm gonna I'm gonna preface this with a legend, and then s- tell you the truth. So, if you grew up in or around Pittsburgh, which there's I didn't. a good chance you spent your whole childhood terrified of the Green Man or Charlie No Face, who was said to wander dark alleys <laughs> and lonely no country lanes at night. The story went that Charlie No-Face lost his said face foolishly playing near power lines, which made him sound like a character dreamed up by the power company for electric safety PSAs. (laughs) No kidding. PSAs being public Public service service announcements. So here's the truth. Yes, this is the rare, terrifying case of kids on the playground getting the story pretty much dead on. Wow. Charlie No-Face was eventually actually named Raymond Robinson. Everybody loves me. really was cursed with a grotesquely deformed skull-like face. One summer day in 1919, a young, not yet faceless Raymond and his friends thought it would be a swell idea to horse around on a local electrified trolley bridge. A boy had died on the bridge a year earlier. And all the kids knew this, but electricity had, like, just been invented. Shocking. So parents didn't bother to teach them basic stuff like don't play on proven deadly electric bridges. Sure enough, Raymond got a dose of 1,200 volts, which scorched Ooh. his face like Fuck. a blowtorch. His eyes were cooked in their sockets. His nose was burnt off, and his left Hot arm sockets. was destroyed up to the, <laughs> destroyed up to the elbow. 
Despite absorbing enough electricity to melt Frankenstein's neck bolts, Raymond somehow survived the ordeal. His face did not. That's an odd unit of measurement. Well, if you look at our scale, it was clearly hot enough to melt Frankenstein's neck bolts. (laughs) It kind of reminds me, what was our unit of measure a couple episodes ago? (laughs) It was kilometers and centimeters and millimeters and gallons and liters. It's how Wisconsin measures, uh, you know, life. Yeah, it was bad. Yeah. All right. So... Let's see. Okay, so despite absorbing enough electricity to melt, melt said neck bolts. neck bolts, Raymond somehow survived the ordeal. For the rest of his life, Raymond led a mostly solitary existence, only leaving the house at night because he didn't want to give kids nightmares. That plan That's didn't good. work. A good guy. Usually, the boogeyman only exists in your head. With the boogeyman, but sometimes he simply. Is that guy the boogeyman? The sounds who only mows his lawn at night. He sounds like fun, actually. The boogeyman sounds like I'm gonna go out to a disco. That's a dated reference. Going out to a club <laughs> and dancing. I feel. I feel bad for this guy, actually. <laughs> so that's it, ladies and gentlemen. That's our creepy, 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 creepy. Our Halloweens. The Creep Fest. With different capitalized letters stagnating themselves. Like Toys R Us. Maybe a backwards R. Different fonts. Yes. So we've had a we've had a really awesome couple of first 10, 20 episodes. I think we're on like 14 or 15 right now with this one. So I just want to say um, we really appreciate what you guys have to say. Uh, If you can, hit us up. Rate and review on iTunes is a big deal. Yes. For sure. For sure. Don't hit us up with a flashlight. Well, can't be up with one. I tore apart my last one. Okay. Fair enough. So I I just want to take two seconds to say um, one, like I said before, two conspiracy therapy show at gmail.com and also hit us up on Twitter at conspiracy T show. Josh, what do you got? Well, uh, Larry and I also do a podcast with my wife. It's called Potty Slam. P O D Y S L A M. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook. Yeah. Also, I want to say uh, it's on iTunes and Stitcher, and you should check out the first episode because it made me want to like Ralph. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it was, it was a little stabby. It was very. I there's some you know, holes in the story. I think though. <laughs> The, the funny thing is, it's not that it was like, it's not that it was, I, I don't understand how to, I, I, I don't know how to explain it without sounding weird, but basically it was just, it was super gross. I didn't, I, you know, it's, it's the sort of stuff that as a not wrestling fan, I enjoyed to listen to. Yeah. So it's something that you should check out if you're not even a fan it's just like the baseball podcast that Larry does with the Ephus. It's obscure stories behind the lines. It's not on the field. It's not necessarily, you know, during the act. It's 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 a good view into what goes on when you're not yeah, paying for it to watch it. It's in it, 
it it's involved in the world. It's not the actual action, but it's the not world the around in ring. It. Right. It's the world outside, which I find fascinating. For sure. And as you mentioned, the EFIS, EFISpodcast.com, a baseball history podcast. So you can catch me there. Well, if you've you've checked that out, you've probably uh, searched out the Beer City Media shows. So hopefully you'll check out all these shows, which we plan on, you know, obviously doing the best we can, providing with like sweet content for you to get through your work week. I think this is a pretty big episode. I'm pretty satisfied with our first annual Creep Fest. Yes. And AKA you know, the Drunk Fest. Maybe for, for sure. You, I, well, maybe. I had like three quarters of a bottle of wine, but that didn't really phase me much. <laughs> Good for I you. I drank like two super, superly. I drank two super stiff drinks and a little bit of fireball. Don't tell my wife. Shh. We won't. Don't tell my wife, listeners. I love like all much. of us. N- none of our wives are listening to this show. Never. <laughs> so anyway, you know what? I want to say this. This is going to be the last thing that we say before we end tonight, ladies and gentlemen. We are going to keep doing the weekly podcast thing. I think this show warrants that and we have so many ideas so many things we want to cover I'm spending my days more so than not listening to just basically true crime and different urban legends and I just want to talk about it. There you so, go. So, well, that's the thing. We, we, we've we gone back and forth, obviously. Uh, we started off saying that it would be a weekly, or, oh, and then we Lord. went to every other week. Tell me and about then, it. You know, it's been, it's been a conspiracy, if you will. But, yeah, I mean, right. we, we really enjoy doing this a lot. And there's obviously plenty of material out there. So that's why when we just start getting this ball rolling, we're like, you know, we should probably just go back to a weekly. Yeah. So you go inside baseball, (laughs) evispodcast.com. Oh, you guys are so cool. Yeah. I just want to check out. All right. (laughs) Send the show. Sorry. Hell yeah, dude. Creepy episode. Come on. Halloween All special. Right, yeah, we'll, we're going to release this on Halloween, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. This will be Halloween October day. 31st. Awesome. M- Monday, October 31st. Oh, really? Halloween's so, on a Monday? That was yeah, on a Sunday. No, I wasn't, just, I wasn't just bullshitting you when I said this This is our No, big, I was thinking just, this was like... I, th- I was thinking Halloween was on a Sunday, and we would just release it then. Right. No, 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 no. It's totally... So it's, it's on a Monday. On oh, okay. Day. Cool. Perfect. That's awesome. So, we'll see you next week because we're a weekly podcast, damn it. <laughs> Go to bed. So Don't eat the pixie sticks. We are so drunk. Don't eat the pixie sticks. Can I sticks. snort them? Josh is right. Can I snort them? What? Snort them. Yeah. Sure. Uh, do a line snort of it because I don't think it's going to do anything <laughs> if you snort it. Your nasal passages, like the melon heads. Oh, crap. Not Larry. You're thinking of the pixie dust. <laughs> Wow. You can't Jesus. fly. <laughs> Jesus. 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 All right. I'm ready to go. I'm done with this podcast. I'll see you next week, creepers. We got something scary planned for you this first week of November. <laughs> Goodbye.
What's that in this Good shit? Good night. Love you. See you on the flip. he does he sleeps wakes up long enough to eat drop a bomb pee on his mom and then go to sleep i call that a tuesday this has been a presentation of beer city media